In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. So, here we are, folks. This is it. The final regular No Sleep podcast episode before our made-a-list and checked-it-twice killer Christmas bonanza. Episode 7 of Season 17 will be a Christmas special, available to all listeners, containing many stories to fill you with frights and delights. And for Season Pass 17 holders, there'll be an additional Christmas episode released in the run-up to the holiday itself. And who knows, maybe there are a couple of other festive treats in store. But for now, it's the last week of calm before the storm. Hopefully you've gotten all your Christmas shopping done, including plenty of food, horror books, and Brandon Boone albums. And in the spirit of shopping in December, it's time for horror. In our first tale, we join a man who's made it his purpose to help others. Is he a doctor or a saint? Does his role as healer follow a scientific route or a supernatural one? In this tale, shared with us by author Tor Anders Olven, the answer may be more complex than it seems. Performing this tale is Graham Rowett. So it might not be Judas Priest, but this is... The Painkiller. The ritual is simple. Painless. That's kind of a joke right there. Not the ha-ha kind, but more of a forced smile and a nod of appreciation kind. They call me the Painkiller... I take away your pain. For a modest fee, of course. I don't do it for the money. I'll lay you down on my couch. A cheap three-seater with a weird Swedish name, Blomenflugen or some such. I'll ask you to bury your head in the pillows, and you look at me like I'm going to smother you. Don't worry, I'm not. Just can't have your eyes on me, is all. I'll light some incense. Yak musk, or uh, maybe a hint of moist frog sweat or something. Honestly, I don't even read the packages anymore. It's all an act. A way to get you to trust me. My grandmother was Norwegian. 
So when you're all nice and comfortable, I'll start babbling incoherently in her mother tongue. Onder, skrimt o vjetjer, la or smarta forsvina harater. I'll keep reciting the line, over and over, until I can hear you sleeping. Well, not required for the ritual. It's a preferred state of consciousness. Means I don't have to worry about you peeking. I can treat all sorts of pain, even mental. It's not a cure, per se. If you're dying, you'll still be dying when you leave this place. I just treat the symptom. That most heinous part of human existence. You don't deserve the pain. That ceaseless, insufferable, throbbing sensation. Wave after wave, eating away at your sanity. Until one day you're no longer human. It doesn't take long. Maybe five minutes. There'll be a creaking sound. And if you wake up, I'll tell you to take a deep breath and relax. And ignore everything around you. You'll feel my hand on your back. It'll be cold as death. And it will leave a mark. You will gasp in shock but soon find yourself unable to move. Part of the ritual, I'll whisper. Try to relax. Next up, a flood of memories will rush over you. They'll feel strangely familiar, but you'll come to realize they're not yours. One by one, they'll take away your pain, fragment by fragment, like removing a single needle from a cactus until, finally, you're all needle-free, pain-free. You'll hear a creaking sound, and suddenly you can move again. And you will thank me. Praise me. Cry a little, maybe. Write me a check, transfer some cash, shower me in dough, and you'll leave. I'll make sure you're gone before I open the hidden trap door again. I can't help myself. I have to see him. See him writhing in agony. The mark on his back pulsating with searing pain. When he's had enough, when his system's shut down, or he rots away, I'll find a new one. Abuser. Destroyer. Human filth. They call me the painkiller, but that's not entirely accurate. I don't kill the pain. I simply pass it to someone else. It's a sad but inevitable fact that on long stretches of road, sometimes a wild animal will wander into the path of a speeding car. It's never a pleasant sight, but when you're a kid, such things can particularly stick with you. And in this tale, shared with us by author Nick Bouchard, we meet a man whose childhood roadkill observations stuck with him into adulthood for quite a different reason. Performing this tale is Jeff Clement. So take care when you're crossing the street. Look left, look right, and then look up, because towering above you might be the tall man.
The rabbit lay in the middle of the street. I saw it hop one last time after being struck. The final hop was just as much habit as it was momentum. It toppled to its side. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street. Its legs still moved, trying to hop. The front legs made their customary small circles. The hind legs made less graceful, twitchy arcs. It moved like my dog when he dreams. That may have been the toughest part. Road kills happen, but they don't usually keep moving. The rabbit's twitches were so like my Franco's dream-induced strides that I was sure I faintly heard the panting and chuffing sounds that invariably accompanied his dreams. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, imitating my dog at nap time. I looked to be sure Franco wasn't actually dreaming his dream of canine conquest. He was not. He was at the back door looking out into the woods. He wagged his tail in lazy sweeps. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, and because his final valiant effort had landed him directly in the double yellow line, he was not dead yet. He had fallen where he was struck. He would have been finished off by another car. Since folks weren't in the habit of driving on the double yellow, he got to continue his sleeping dog imitation for his meager audience. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street. I wondered where roadkills go. I had seen crows pecking pieces off of them sometimes. Once I saw a skunk lug a meaty strip of raccoon into the trees beside the road, and I had heard a couple of stories from people whose pets had been hit by cars. They talked about wrapping their friends in a warm blanket and taking them motionless to the emergency vet. None of those stories ended with survival, but I'm sure some must. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, still kicking. He showed no signs of slowing. If it weren't for the blob of entrails protruding from his mouth, I might have believed he was just knocked out dreaming of chasing something. Perhaps he was. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, and I don't know how long I watched, fascinated by his relentless attempt to finish crossing. It could have been minutes. It could have been days. I was so mesmerized, I might not have noticed the sun setting or rising. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, and a long, old gray car pulled to the side of the road. The door opened, and from behind tinted glass stood a man. He must have been seven feet tall. He was dressed in a gray suit with dark pinstripes. He reached back into the car and extracted a bowler hat, which he crammed down over wild yellow hair and a large valise. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, and the tall man looked both ways before moving ponderously toward the center of the road. Rickety as an old split-rail fence, he walked with the tentative care of a man on stilts. When he reached the rabbit, he knelt at its side and placed his bag on the ground beside him. The rabbit lay in the middle of the street, still twitching his fruitless getaway, as the tall man carefully opened his battered valise. The bag swallowed his forearm as he rummaged for the proper instrument. 
He drew the length of his arm from the bag to reveal a hammer. The tall man brought his arm back and brought the hammer down on the rabbit's head, striking three swift, precise blows. The rabbit lay still. The man used an enormous thumb to wipe the head of the hammer clean. He returned it to the valise. The rabbit lay motionless on the road. This time the man reached beyond his elbow into the seemingly bottomless bag. He pulled out a large, pale ring, a roll of masking tape. He reached back into his impossible satchel and produced a large square of gleaming white paper. The rabbit lay motionless on the large white square. The tall man had placed him there, near the center. Then he picked up one corner of the square and folded it over the rabbit. Then he folded the two sides in and rolled the rabbit out of sight with the care of a mother swaddling her baby. He secured the final corner of the paper wrapping with a piece of masking tape and returned the roll to the bag. The rabbit lay in the middle of the road, wrapped like a cut of beef on the butcher's scale, as the tall man licked his fingers clean. He picked up his satchel and his grisly papoose. After a few steps, he stopped, turned, and looked right at me. He smiled, and even from that distance, I could see that his teeth weren't normal. Shark teeth. The smile faded, covering the jagged teeth, and he nodded to me just once before getting in his car and driving away. The unsettling smile. The terrifying nod. They said, I see you. I know you see me. Worst of all, they said, you're next. But I wasn't. For years I saw that tall man with his doctor's satchel stopping on the side of the road. Have you ever seen him? I sure hope not. I don't think most people can. I don't think people are supposed to see him. He only stops for the ones that still have signs of life. A heaving chest, a blinking, staring eye, gnashing teeth, dreamily kicking legs. You're sure you've never seen him? Now here I lie in the middle of the street, staring up at a darkening sky. I could feel the handlebars when they punched into my chest. I felt my knees strike the grillwork. I felt my face hit the windshield. I can't feel any of that now. But I remember the smell of beer was thick in the air as I hurtled past the shocked yet sedated face of the driver. His expression was that of someone awakened to find they were no longer next to the person they had fallen asleep beside. I lie on my back in the middle of the street. I can't move, and I can no longer feel my injuries. But I can still see and smell and hear 
My ears remembering the screeching tires. My nose remembers the waft of cheap beer. My eyes remember that rabbit. And I'm not surprised when I hear the throaty rumble of an old V8 by the roadside. Its tires crunch to the stop on the shoulder. The sound of the tires is a slow replay of the sound that came from the base of my skull when I hit the windshield. I'm lying on my back in the middle of the street, and something tells me that the double yellow is right beneath me. I imagine myself from above. The stripes enter one crippled shoulder and exit at the hip on the other side. I hear the door of the old sedan snick open, and I hear the springs sigh as someone exits, relieving them of their burden. There is a moment of silence. I hear my pulse quickening in my ears. I know he's putting on his hat and retrieving his satchel. I'm lying on my back in the middle of the street, and I know there's some outward sign I'm alive because he's here. This could be death, but I know it's not, or he would not be visiting me. I'm lying on my back in the middle of the street. My pulse is rapidly ticking my life away. The door thunks shut with a satisfying sound big American cars made in the late 60s. I count four uneven footsteps before I see his silhouette. Like a skyscraper looming above me. I can see his valise as he kneels, setting it beside my head. Up close, I see that his suit is perfectly pressed. It's clean and looks brand new, even though he's had it for at least 20 years. That suit, as much as the man, has held a mythical status for me since that afternoon when I was 12 and home alone while my mother made a grocery run. Lying on my back in the middle of the street, I see him close up as he leans over me. His face contorts with something that might pass for a smile. The smile is a slack maw, crowded with row upon row of sharp, serrated teeth. One bite could turn steak into hamburger. (laughs) A rumbling and somehow gleeful sound boils in his throat. His breath is an open sewer and rotting flesh and sulfurous coals. But his face is not what I thought. His face is just a mask. He seems to have the poorly preserved skin of a person pulled over his head. The eyes in those tattered sockets are as shark-like as his teeth, glittering black orbs, infinite and unblinking There are a few small circular scars on his face, about the size of a quarter. Small, clumsy stitches wreath each scar. In an instant, I realize that the stitching is holding in place the pieces that were punched out by his hammer. The skin of the nose hangs loose. There is nothing behind it to fill that little pouch of flesh. I am looking up the sky in the middle of the street... His face has disappeared from my vision, and I know he's up to his elbow in that old doctor's bag. He makes another wet, 
foul-smelling sound of triumph. And I know he has found what he's looking for. And I try to close my eyes against the swiftly arcing hammer. But they won't close. And the hammer comes down. Once. Twice. Three times. I lose count at five. Each blow is more squelchy and less crunchy. Until there is only darkness. I'm lying in the darkness, in the middle of the road, and I imagine the tall man in his tattered man mask licking lumpy gray bits of my brain from his fingers. Perhaps a tuft of hair or a stringy gobbet of flesh have snagged in his rows of teeth. I sense nothing, but I know I'll be wrapped in that bone-white paper that he's up to his shoulder in his satchel searching for a piece big enough for a grown man. In the darkness, I wonder if I am with my body, being rolled into that paper like a market-fresh fish. I feel certain that whatever it is that makes me, me, would be lost if it were no more than the contents of my skull now splashed across the pavement. You can find an app for almost anything these days. Find real people in your area to cuddle with, check. Tag every public toilet you've used, check. Endlessly milk a photo of a cow's udder, check. And in this tale, shared with us by author Danielle Williams, we're encouraged to download an app that translates the language of cats. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, and Jesse Cornett. So, ever wondered why your pet is misbehaving? There's an app for that. But be sure you really want to know, because you might just hear bad tidings from Queen Sophie. dark in the apartment, completely still, except for the cat. Mom. 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 Cass had trained her cat Sophie in the use of push buttons for communication. It had looked cute on YouTube. The cat was good with them. Mom. Cass was beginning to regret the buttons. A long, drawn-out wall, demanding, not lonely. Monkey, attend me immediately is how Cass would translate it. Cass and Queen Sophie normally enjoyed a peaceable relationship. But the buttons couldn't solve all their communication problems. Two months ago, Sophie began pooping outside her litter box. Cass had changed litter brands to no avail, 
and the vet ruled out any illness. Besides, it wasn't a consistent error. It might happen three times in a single week, then none the next. Sometimes with wailing, sometimes without. And it never happened during the day. Nope, it only happened in the dead of night. So Cass could step in the creamy surprise first thing in the morning on her way to work. But tonight, for the first time ever, Cass wouldn't have to guess at what Queen Sophie was trying to tell her. Cass pulled up the app her friend had shown her. Blue light shone in her face. She squinted hard, swiping. Mom. 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 The sound of kitty nails on laminate. Cass paused the arcane sequence of swipes needed to access the secret app to hear what Sophie would press next. Her guess was mad. Second guess, snack. Follow. Well, in a second. <sighs> Dang, she lost her place. She exited the app to restart the sequence. Dragon's Dream, copyright 2019, Edmo Software, loading. On first glance, it was cheap asset-swapped shovelware. A 2D platformer where a knight float jumped across greenfield set against a purple mountainscape. But... If you pressed right, died three times in the first chasm, a pay screen came up, trading seven league boots, actually a double jump, for cold hard cash. But if you pulled up your phone's keyboard, held the E until a pop-up with additional symbols came up, then entered the first smiley emoji followed by three lightning bolts, swiped up once, then hit your phone's back button three times, the phone would reboot into an animal speech translator. Her best friend frequented some odd forums, but Cass had zero, no, less than zero clue how anyone in those forums dug up these obscure secrets, too elaborate to just stumble upon. Cass wouldn't have believed it, except her friend had shown her in person on her own phone and then used it on her elderly pug, Bruce Wayne, who, through the phone, requested medicine for his doggy arthritis before trotting to the cabinet where his pills were kept. She'd been convinced. Follow. Mom. Follow. Cass shoved off her covers and discovered her slippers with her toes. The phone was rebooting. She scuffed into the kitchen. The cat looked up, normally soulful, sparkling eyes, shining creepy laser red in the oven light Cass kept on 24-7 as a nightlight. Upon sight of her slothful keeper, Sophie gave what Cass thought of as a frustrated grumble. Well, it's about time. Cass held up one finger. One minute. The cat meowed in protest. The screen's background had turned gray, displaying blocky white text inside a blue screen of death box. Dragon's Tongue Translation Program. She hadn't seen a screen like this since she was a kid, trying to figure out which sound blaster option to pick out from the list. Cass tried to pull up the phone keyboard, but that didn't work, just like her friend had warned. The box disappeared in a veil of dithered pixels, then reappeared. Speak species of animal, read the text. The form had a list of over 60 animal species so far that the program recognized according to her friend, but you have to speak clearly. Cass wet her lips. Domestic cat. The text changed. Speak cat's name. Sophia. 
speak one to translate Felinese, domestic dialect, into English, two for all others. Domestic Felinese? How ridiculous was she? This was just some stupid prank app, not even a creepy pasta, just some big joke on a forum somewhere. The cat weaved between her bare ankles. Ooh, extra soft, like she just bathed herself, then bounded over to the soundboard. Mom. Invalid speech entry. Speak desired option. Abort, retry, fail. Sophie, hush a second. Mad. She held up her finger again. One minute. The cat grumbled. Cass shushed her. Retry. There it was. One to translate into English. One. Now listening. She squatted down, held her phone close to the cat who pushed it away with a paw, claws out. Okay, Sophie, show me, show mommy. The cat turned in a circle, hit the soundboard again. Mom. Yes, I'm here. The cat arced her head up, gave full voice to a yowl, then turned her head sideways to try and bite Cass's leg. She stood up in a hurry. Oh, hey, no bite. The cat dashed away. Cass watched the screen. Now translating. A horizontal dash turned into a forward slash, turned into a vertical line, turned into a backslash. A primitive working animation. She began to follow the cat into the hall. Then her eyes fell on the text on the translator. Mom, there's a demon in the laundry room. She stopped cold, then let out a soft bark of a laugh. (laughs) A demon, clearly a mistranslation, probably a a roach or or a vinegaroon, though a dog would probably fit the functions of a demon better, given a cat's worldview. The hall led straight on to a bathroom. To the left lay a spare bedroom, across the way from it, the laundry room. She overshot the laundry room to pluck a tissue from the Puffs Plus box in the bathroom. Sophie squalled. Cass checked the screen, but would have to ask it to listen again, apparently. Demon indeed. She stepped into the cramped laundry room, dimly lit by the scentsy warmer kept above the washing machine to keep the litter box smells at bay. She scanned the tile of the floor, looking for dark, bug-like spots, Behind her, Sophie screamed. Cass jumped, then whipped around. The cat was a sleek shadow, back arched in the dim hall. I'm not taking you to the vet, darling. That was the only time she screamed like that, but was Sophie trembling? Maybe I should go. Cass turned back to shut the door and noticed the shadow in the corner behind the dryer. A shadow that was too dark. She took a step back. Something moved in the shadow or so Cass thought. Then she realized it was the shadow itself, a shape meaty and black and big as a Rottweiler, oozing into clarity. A shape now perched on the front loader. She thought it was looking at her. At least, she assumed those dozens of glittering round craters making her skin crawl were eyes. They were set above long teeth, each half the size of a butter knife. The shape reached for her, Cass hurled her glowing phone at the shape and yanked the door shut with a bang that made the sensey lid clatter. Sophie rubbed her head gratefully against her shin, but Cass was too busy fighting to hold the handle shut. Whatever was in there, wanted out. Cass's breath came out in soft wheezes, a counterpoint to the low grunts of the thing in the laundry room, heaving against her grip on the door. 
what seemed to be years later, the handle released. The slit under the door darkened, then went bright blue for a second. It's got my phone. The light swept back and forth. Did it even have hands to hold it with? Its full, terrible shape had brushed her eyes before she slammed the door, but her mind was holding the door shut on the information. A low, drawn-out sound from the other side of the door, the low, roar grind of an empty garbage disposal. But when it stopped, there was no fading whir of blades coming to a stop. It ended like a brutal, dry hack, final and sickening. A pause, then another onslaught that ended with creepy sibilance. Then, it sounded like... No. A pause, and then the floor shook as another turbulence of noise was unleashed in the laundry room. Sophie wailed. Cass shook. Her fingers hurt from gripping the door handle so tight. The awful sound cut off again. Then came a sound that startled Cass because of its delicacy. It sounds like it placed my phone on the floor. Looking down between her feet, she saw the blue light. It was centered behind the door and no longer moving. Behind her, Sophie scratched the floor. The stench that followed of well-digested tuna primavera made Cass gag, but she refused to move. Poor kitty. Poor kitty. A firm bite on her shin awoke Cass. She shrieked. (gasps) The hallway was flooded with normal sunlight, just like every morning. Silent, except for the cat pacing impatiently between her feet. Cass had fallen asleep standing up, right in the hallway. Her hands were cramped in a knot, strangled around the laundry room door handle. It took five agonizing minutes to unravel them. It had to be a nightmare. It had to be. I I was sleepwalking. She bumbled the door open with a clumsy sweep of her elbow. The cat hurried in, took her position in the litter box. While she scratched around, Cass worked the phone off the floor with her stiffened fingers. What made the maneuver even harder was that she wanted to avoid the blackened marks that now marred the outside of her teal phone case, where it had held it. She jabbed at the blackened power button with the tip of her pinky fingernail. The screen lit up. It was the translation program. She read the message left for her. Catch you later, Cass. It's pretty common to discuss who you wouldn't want to meet down a dark alley. But what about just outside the entrance? What about Derek? He's been standing at the opening of this particular alley for as long as people can remember. And in this tale, shared with us by author Liam Burke, we find out why Derek stands vigil and why you won't regret listening to him. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Jessica McAvoy, 
and Jesse Cornett. So remember, there's no light at the end of the tunnel when the tunnel leads to a dead end. But you won't see that if you look with love's eyes. I needed that coffee badly, friend. Thank you. Now, you need to listen to me like your life depends on it. Something tells you I'm more than just some lunatic staring at nothing all day. Philly's full of weird and eccentric, but I can assure you I'm the only thing standing between you and that alleyway sucking you dry. Hey, 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 eyes on me. Why would you look over at a predator when I just told you it's haunting you, hmm? Now, I may look like a juice box squeezed hard for the last drop, but I'm still sane. You've started seeing things in there. The edges of something or someone you love drawing you in. Between my sorry state and those tempting visions, ending up here was inevitable for you. What do I see in there? Huh. It doesn't matter, but if you need to know what it looks like down there so badly, I'll tell you. Just keep your eyes on me, hmm? It's a short walk past that chain-link fence into empty darkness, day or night. Gray stone blocks, even though the buildings next to it are red brick. The mouth's twenty feet wide, or maybe it's fifty. It could be that it stretches like lips, pulling back, exposing teeth primed to bite down. You feel it, but you don't care, because the scent of something your heart screams desperately for is yanking you back around. Hey, hey, eyes on me. It's not that the alley's alive. That wouldn't make sense. There's... Something inside, living within long enough that it's contaminated the space like a disease. It smells like love, but I'm telling you it's not. I used to think it was too. I lied to myself so I could get a look at my own past without the guilt of betrayal. It showed me what I wanted so that it could feast, guzzling that agony down greedily. Sorry, this coffee's heavenly, and I'm making a lot of drinking references. Your fault for bringing it to me, really. I can see I'm not convincing you, though. You think you're just walking up to a sickly waste of a guy and helping out, sneaking a peek down there while you're here, like I did. (laughs) Oh yeah, you heard me. Focus up and listen in, huh? With any luck, you'll walk away from this a monster slayer. There is no distance you can travel or stretch of time you can cross that lets you get away from abandoning the ones who mean the most to you. No matter what they've done, pain's a terrible motivator. It comes in all sorts of flavors and will make you do a million different terrible things. Guilt, especially. See, I loved my sister. I should say love, present tense, but I'm so tired now. I was exhausted long before I fled from her in Cali. Philadelphia seemed far enough to go to escape. I reasoned it was a solid plan. It wasn't. 
Nursing school dropout, no connections. I saw the red brick of downtown near Webster and Twelfth. Decided I'd start over here. Have a fresh start without any failed responsibilities or accusing stares. Hawthorne Park was within spitting distance of my apartment, and my job at Sonny's clothing store was close enough I didn't need to drive. Oh, you know the store. It's abandoned now. Oh, that tracks. I can't imagine the place lasted more than a year after everything. Long, dark, and ravenous here has been feeding on me much longer than that, I assume. Let me guess, you're in 4B over in that building, too. Huh, yeah. I thought its influence might have gone further than I assumed at first. Every day I got my steps in, up before dawn, back after the sun set. It was a great way to keep my low twenties physique intact. The pavement felt a little closer every week as my shoes wore out. The cool temperature worked its way further into my chest. I was alive, but I wasn't really living. It's not like I ever got a decent night of sleep, what with my abandoned sister haunting my dreams. With the frequent cutbacks, I was one of the only employees left at Sonny's. That meant I was an opener and a closer, but I didn't complain. Out loud, at least. Okay, not a lot, but fine. I may have annoyed the hell out of my co-workers. I've always had an obligation complex, and making myself needed is reflexive. On the upside, long hours kept me from thinking of her, remembering the smell of antiseptic and slow death that eventually drove me from all hospitals permanently. I started seeing the one before me on the way back from work, a middle-aged guy standing outside the alley while the crowd flowed around him. He was always staring into the darkness, always as intently as he could. When he moved at all, the motion seemed ritualistic, like some kind of slow-motion mime act. Still four blocks down, I'd seen a clown put a cigarette out on his own thigh, too. Odds relative like that. I came up with all sorts of stories about who he was and why he was there. A smoker avoiding his disapproving family. A secret agent sending codes at a drop-off. Maybe he was a reptile person getting instructions. (laughs) You're smiling. You must have come up with your own theories about me, too. Don't worry. I guarantee it's much worse than you thought. It felt intrusive finding him there so often. And I thought about taking a different route. Bad enough I was infringing on his solace, the only thing worse would be to actually talk to him. Like asking what someone's reading when they have headphones in. You just don't do it. I I should have more strongly considered taking a different route. Something kept pulling me back to that exact path. You felt it too. A sort of caged menace that you have to check on, or else it might surprise you from behind. Early on in those stages, he was still healthy looking, and there wasn't anything about the alley itself that was strange. When my hours got cut and I started coming home earlier and earlier, he started changing. He began drying up and thinning out, a shriveling pattern I'd seen before and had hoped never to see again. I seemed to be the only one who noticed. I now know that I was being lured. 
People walked around him, either acting like they didn't see him or legitimately caught up in their own worlds. For a busy crowd in a city like this, that would have been normal, except no one bumped into him either. No one looked down the alley with its grisly sense of awareness. It kept the pickpockets away at least. So good and bad, right? Tragically for me, there was no upside to the way my mind started reacting. His declining appearance triggered the guilt of my past fiercely, and there was only one way to process it. My recurring nightmare, of course. I'd pass him by, see him a little smaller, and later get to revisit the greatest hits of my worst moments instead of sleeping peacefully. As always, in that familiar hell, I stood just outside the hospital room. The number 412 was nailed to the wall by the door, which was how I knew. This was that memory. Sadly, that knowledge never stopped the film from rolling, never stopped the events from playing out as I went in and out of that room. At first, Julia was barely ill, a clinging sensation of weakness, enough that she needed care, but not enough that we couldn't talk. We quipped about her never making the WNBA. Sunlight streamed through the windows, and we knew we'd beat the odds in time for me to graduate. We didn't talk about how mom and dad had gone like this, even though the afflictions were different. I'd I'd been a child then, and I hadn't known the things I was learning now. This time would be different. Instead of big sis taking care of me, I would take care of her. Slowly she lost weight. Her eyes sank and her skin stretched across her skull and fingers, as if her skeleton was impatient to get out and become a Halloween decoration. Her hair withered from science's attempt at playing chicken with her body. She still made cracks, though. Joked about how there wasn't a force on Earth that she couldn't win a blinking contest with. The fact that she was actually playing it with herself was never brought up. The color faded from her day by day enough that I could see the road map of fire that danced through her flesh, etched in blue lines across her body. Veins, you see, are blue until the blood is exposed to air, the iron in the liquid, I guess. I was certain if hers was split, it would shine with radiated crimson light, because despite the pain, despite the agony, the countless visits and endless sick days I'd taken, He just wouldn't pass. Iron wasn't just in her blood, it was in her soul. But our optimism shed in step with her muscle mass, leaving only bitter cynicism, until one day, as they always do in America, the funds ran out long after my hope. For the last time, I walked past the number 412. I sat in the chair that had become a vile second home to me. I slipped my healthy, warm hand into her icy grip and felt the near vindictive strength as she clamped down, rasping past tubes and her own frailty. They say a few more treatments and I can maybe go home. Her eyes shone with the same steel that raced through her vessels and capillaries. I winced involuntarily and shook my head, exhausted. No, no, Julia, there's not going to be any treatments anymore. No. The word was a defiant curse, 
When I'd heard from her every day, it had been molded by her time here, beaten like white-hot steel into conviction. It wasn't a denial anymore, it was a new law of physics spoken into existence. It doesn't work like that. You can't just defy more money into my bank account. I'm already working more than is healthy for me. Healthy? <laughs> she cackled, snatching her hand away. <laughs> Don't tell me about healthy. I'm not done yet. I have things to do. The coughing fit took her. But mercifully, my dream skipped that to her next desperate grab. Go fund me. Crowdsourcing. Hell, you're not bad looking. Surely you can make side money stripping. That... that was it. I could tell that she was serious. That was when I knew my sister was gone. I got up, my heart pounding and I walked to the door. I paused, not looking at her, working up the nerve to tell her. I almost cried or laughed at the ridiculous pose I must have struck, like out of a damn soap opera. Finally, her gaze boring holes in my back, I told her, They're transferring you to a hospice tomorrow, Julia. It's over. I'm, I'm so sorry I couldn't save you. But I can't do this anymore. <sighs> Goodbye. I can't die like them. Not like them. After everything I did for you. I took a step and another. And only one more word followed me, whispered and deafening. Derek. I always awoke screaming. My name chased me out of the vision along with an image of Julia, a corpse with hate-filled sockets inches from mine. I'd fled all the way across the country to get away from her. For all I knew, she was still alive, beating the odds. And wherever she was, she'd only gotten nastier. I had no doubt of that. I... Uh, I'm still ashamed to think such things of her. Day after day, I repeated the cycle, knowing he was a guy who could be going through something just like Julia. Something was killing him. And of all the scrubs that could have run into him, fate had chosen me. I had to do something. I hadn't been looking for another chance to do the right thing, and I'm usually bad at that, but this had fallen right into my lap. This time would be different for sure. <clears throat> my... Eyes are up here, pal. Not in that cement gullet, hmm? It all sounds familiar, right? Motivations might be a little shifted, but the pattern of events lines up. Good, good, good. You're starting to catch on. So I started trying to reach him every way I could. Right after Halloween, before winter really kicked in, I remember thinking I'd have to bring this guy a coat before long. So I saved up and got a few from a thrift store to hang on to. Trying to get him to eat didn't work. I'd attempted mundane conversations, but that had been a dead end. He was still in the grips of the beast, but to me, he just seemed crazy. He wouldn't ever speak directly to me, just rocked forward and back. His eyes would squint and I could hear him making small noises without opening his mouth. 
He would reach down at an angle like he was trying to pull something up. He'd whine in the back of his throat and go back to staring. I considered calling paramedics to get help, but decided against it. He was my pal. You don't send pals to insane asylums. And obviously, I hate hospitals. Instead, I just spent time with him, making sure his vitals were decent. Despite his appearance, his pulse was strong and his eyes were intensely focused. No other signs of illness. He was as healthy as he could be, considering. I rationalized he must have been getting food when I wasn't around. Prayed that his symptoms didn't mean what I thought they did. All the while, the strip of black between the buildings grew more intimate, like a dangerous friend of a friend who slowly takes you in, hated or not. Every day that a mugger or catastrophe wasn't birthed from its sinister womb, I was put just a little more at ease. It was wrong, it was unsettling, but it was almost comforting in a way, like walking through a graveyard at 3 a.m., or popping a pill you've survived before. I spent increasing amounts of time hanging out with Ned. I called him that to myself and to him because I needed a friend, and he was the closest I had, Ned for short. Since all I could seemingly do for him was be present, I contented myself with that. I think that was around the time Sonny's finally let me go entirely. I had no idea how I was going to make rent, but somehow being there at the mouth with Ned made it seem less critical. It was easier being with him, anyway. Ned never judged me or told me I was letting him down. He was out there every day, all day, all night, reliable. If I could stay out with him long enough, sometimes I even passed out so hard I barely remembered the nightmare. As an added bonus, I I never had to clean him or his clothes. He wore the same red flannel shirt and jeans, the same black undershirt. They stayed spotless, his garments perpetually fresh, like the alley. Nothing but he and I wanted to be near it, not even dirt or germs, I supposed. But while the cement gash seemed to stretch more and more, Ned filled his garments less and less. I started to worry in a much stronger sense than before. I needed to know why he was out there, and on top of that, how. By all rights, he should have been dead, and his plight drew me in like a fish hook in my heart. Determined to do more, I marched downstairs one day, out of my apartment, and over to Ned. It was early afternoon in November. It was freezing, and I didn't need most of a nursing degree to know he wouldn't make it on crazy alone in those temperatures. I had lunch packed in a cooler with a few drinks. I'd picked out one of the old blue winter jackets from the pile I'd built in my closet. I planned to stay there the entire day if need be, and to just drape the damn thing on him if he didn't acknowledge me. So, without so much as a blink in my direction from Ned, I set up my rickety lawn chair and went about trying to get clothes on a man refusing to look at me, who moved as if sleepwalking. It reminded me of my training, a double-edged sensation of regret and satisfaction. I was finally doing something meaningful for someone. His frame was so light I felt like I might break him. His entire existence seemed brittle on the edge of a collapse that had no medical reason. 
As I tended him, out of the corner of my eye, movement demanded my attention from the dark hall. That was the first time I'd felt frightened of it in weeks. It felt as if it had woken up and some obsidian eye had finally noticed me fully. I tried to focus on Ned. I told myself I was imagining things. Nothing was in there. Nothing had ever been in there. One of the habits you pick up when learning to care for others is connecting through speech. Even if they are in the deepest pit of Alzheimer's, the tone and cadence strums something primal in us. It can be the difference between a slow, grisly decline and an arduous recovery. It also works wonders in holding back fear in the dark. In that moment, I needed that communion as much as he did, if for different reasons. As was my habit, I asked what I thought was an innocent question to start. What do you... what do you see in there, Ned? I didn't expect an answer. Ned was crazy, after all. So when suddenly a croak escaped his lips, I nearly jumped out of my skin. After recovering from my complete bafflement, I grabbed a Capri Sun, stabbed the straw in, and put it to his lips. He drank greedily, eyes burning holes through my own. Oh, okay, okay. Holy shit, Ned, can you hear me? How, how many fingers am I holding up? I wiggled digits in front of him, but he had suddenly found his voice and ignored the question entirely. My name's... Not Ned. And if you want to see what it is, you just have to look. Look a little closer. There. See that? Right there. Ned was pointing now, but I didn't follow his finger right away. This was incredible. Ned was talking to me. Even if it sounded like he was coughing up a full vacuum bag, this was huge. Sorry, man, I I just kind of came up with that. It's short for... You know what, never mind. What is your name? I have so many questions. I helped him finish dressing and offered a PB&J. He looked at it as if he hadn't seen anything like it in his life and practically snatched it, taking a massive bite. Around the mouthful of dollar store ingredients, he replied... Mark. Mark Danbury. This is is a great sandwich. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and for the coat. But but really, you should look again. I, I have been, but okay. I slowly swiveled my head to follow the unwavering, bony finger of... Mark... Honestly, I was a little disappointed. I thought his name would be something whimsical or irrational. In my excitement, I'd forgotten my earlier misgivings about the space. I'm Derek. Derek... I tried to tell him my name as I looked, but the introduction died on my lips. On the other side of the fence, where I'd been staring with him for days, was movement, after all. It was no more than that, something you just catch at the edge of your vision. I tilted my head and squinted, but it kept eluding me. Just a series of familiar motions spat up from my nightmare, only now it was out in the waking world. I thought, I 
saw the edges of an oversized bed, the slender skeleton of an IV stand. And what was that? Squirming in the middle. I wanted to see if it was what... Who? I thought it was. It couldn't be. I struggled to make sure and got nothing but eye strain as my reward. By the time I tore my gaze away, it was seven o'clock at night. Hours had gone by in an instant. My staring buddy was still doing as he always had, but this time he was at least able to speak. You almost had it. Don't go. You're almost there. You'll see it. And then I can... You have to look. His tone was insistent, nearly a feverish demand, a fanatic imploring I drink from the cup. I reconsidered him speaking being a good thing as a chill went down my spine. I had a half-hearted explanation for leaving cocked and ready, but a single sound from the alley killed the lie before it ever left my lips. Derek. That, that, that was her voice. Without a doubt, a waft of sterile air tickled my nose. Terrified, I stumbled back and ran from the formless shape beginning to approach the chain-link fence. I didn't stop until I was safe in my apartment, curtains drawn and all the lights on. I didn't dare look out the window, instead choosing to concentrate on my last bottle of gin and a dirty glass. No, where do you... Do not check in there. This is a cautionary tale, don't you get that? That night... The dream chased me out of my head for what I didn't realize would be the last time. A desiccated mummy with Julia's voice accusing me, as always, drove me out of slumber and back into the world. The hospital agony was being replaced earlier and earlier by the inevitable corpse. I could hardly stand it. But the image in the alley, that had been earlier, when there had still been hope. Was that what Mark was staring at? Was he gazing into his past, trying to make it better. That felt right, somehow. I thought to myself, hey, maybe I could, too. There was only one way to find out. I convinced myself. This time, I brought coffee and a protein bar. I know, it's like you were following a script. I planned to take one last look. If I saw her again, I could maybe do something about the nightmares ruining my life. If there wasn't anything, after all, I could go back to dealing with my past and the tanked economy one glass of booze and microwaved burrito at a time, and try to bring Mark in from the cold. I stood there next to my only friend, and I stared as the formless outlines converged. He had transformed into a vertical bag of bones, little nothing remaining, like how Julia was just before I left, a lot like how I look now. While I waited for the shapes to coalesce into what I hoped they would, Mark started speaking unprompted. It was a little funny after so long wanting him to say something, now all I wanted was silence. I was trying to see my sister after all. I didn't understand the ritual that was happening. I had a real good friend years back. Ben was his name. We went on an ice fishing trip. It was one of our favorite things to do. We went out to that sheet of ice every day for a week and didn't catch a thing. But it didn't really matter. I just wanted the company. 
if I'm honest, finally, it was never about the fishing. Twenty years of thankless marriage and all I ever wanted was him. When we were out on the lake, just the two of us, I was free. Sarah, that's my wife. She never came with. Couldn't take the cold. And that was the point, wasn't it? Finding the one place cold enough to end up with someone warm. The last night, we went out for one last shot at coming home with even one fish. The weather had been getting better. That's why we went out after dark, so the temperature would be lower. It didn't help, it turns out. He fell in. My bin. No matter how hard I held on, the ice kept breaking and sloughing off in chunks. And my gloves were so soaked, and it was just cold enough to numb me, and... He went under. I was devastated. I couldn't stand to look my wife in the eye knowing if I'd just been true to myself, we wouldn't have had to sneak around. He would be alive. I came here, in that apartment building. He pointed, never looking away from the alley, directly at the place I was living in. Then I saw him, in there. That's what I've been looking at. My bin. I keep trying to pull him out or stop him from falling in, but every time... <laughs> his voice dropped and he murmured to me, tears making his piercing eyes shine. What do you see? I stood there, voiceless, and really looked. Slowly, the bed formed. The ivy stand, the blankets... The awful chirping of the EKG. Suddenly I could see her. Actually see her, my sister. The way she was when she first went in. Before the disease seeped into her soul, destroying the person I'd loved. I see her. I see my sister. I spoke softly, raising my voice any louder seemed like sacrilege. She was getting out of bed, stretching, her head turning to see me, and she smiled. My heart filled with a surge of emotion. I hadn't felt that way in so long. I almost didn't recognize Happy when I had it. She stood up and took a step towards the fence, and another, reaching out for a hug. She... I think she wants a hug. <laughs> I laughed a little, my eyes welling up and ready to ugly cry. I didn't care. I, I had her back, somehow. I leaned forward, my fingers reaching, yet hesitated at the absurdity of what I was doing. Hadn't I seen Mark do this exact thing for weeks? Derek? A look of confusion crossed her face. I shook it off. It didn't matter what Mark had been doing. Sorry, it's nothing. I'm just, just so tired. I can't believe you're here. I stuttered and stumbled through the first words spoken to her in so long. I was trying to get it all out so fast the phrases collided and jumbled on my lips. Derek. This time it was an admonishment. She knew I couldn't believe it, and that was ruining it all. 
My heart sank as she backed up. No, I mouthed. She sat down on the bed, face crestfallen. No, 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 I begged. She was lying back down, her form fading once more. No, please, no, I love you. I shouted as the lines went out of focus and the shapes became indistinct. Yet I knew they were still there. I could feel tendrils of emotional friction binding me to something. I could almost see them leading back into the dark of the closing mouth. It's okay. Mark's voice came from behind me, but I didn't turn. I had to see it when Julia came back, or she might not stay. She'll be back. Or whatever it is wearing her memory. I really am sorry, Derek. You seem like a decent guy. His voice was calm now. The sense of a ticking timer having left him entirely. But it needs a food source. And... Well, there's only one thing it wants. Love. I think whatever it is, it must be very old (laughs) to sustain itself on something like that. But really, I, I have no idea. I wiggled and squirmed, trying to see her, the hook fully planted in my mouth. Now, I heard him. But finding Julia was a need that drowned everything else out. Mark sighed, seeing me like that. There's only one way out of its trap. Someone has to specifically ask you what you see. That's when you can talk back again. You have to get them to look. And then ask them what they see. And if you're lucky, they tell you. That's when you get to walk away. Before you're all used up. I swallowed hard, barely able to absorb the words. Yet they had the ring of truth. Hadn't it all gone just as he just said? I couldn't move, but I didn't really care anymore. It took me a long time before I even wanted to stop seeing him. And when I realized it wasn't really Ben, hopefully it won't take you as long as me. The one before me didn't explain anything. You seem like a nice guy, though. So I wanted to give you a head start. Don't worry. It won't let you die. Not until the next food source comes. So, until you shake it off, try to make the most of it. Goodbye, friend. I never saw Mark again after that, or much of anything, other than my sister. She got out of bed, tried to hug me, and I failed her every time. For so long I thought if I just loved her hard enough I'd reach her. In time I realized the truth. It wasn't just love I felt, it was the guilt of failing her. And that's what it really wanted. That's when the curtain was pulled back. It's an ugly thing in there, friend. All wrong angles and bloated skin. It black pit. Eyes draw out your deepest regret, reflecting it back a hundred times. It reeks with rot, and it grins at you, knowing you can't let it go, no matter how it hurts you. 
It puts you in a feedback loop as long as you give it that emotional buffet, and as soon as you don't, well, you make a great lure. It starts eating your body when it can't eat your soul and casts you out, a worm on a hook. The next bleeding heart sees the shimmy and gets sucked in. Not me, though. I refuse to play. I may have told you what I see, after all, but it's different this time. All I've ever wanted to do was save the ones I love. And if I can't save my parents or my sister, I can stand watch here. I can take this bastard down with me and starve it out. I can do that. At least that one thing. All we have to do is break the cycle. So please... When I tell you this, know that I mean it with love. Do not look. Walk away. <sighs> Damn. Well, I tried. So, what do you see? Perhaps this is a controversial stance to take, but in my opinion, if you've committed a series of sinister slayings, then the best thing to do is turn yourself in. Just stroll all up into your local police station and warm up your wrists for the handcuffs. But in this tale, shared with us by author Rona Vassilar, we meet a supposed serial killer who's having quite the hard time of convincing the cops of his culpability. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford and Eddie Cooper. So don't give up. We believe in you. You might seem like a nice guy who wouldn't hurt a fly, but I'm sure you can convince people otherwise in The Interview. This is Detective Sean Matthews of the SLPD interviewing James Smith on December 6, 2019 regarding the Bedlam Butcher. James, I understand you're here to... You want to confess that you are responsible for the six victims found in Bedlam County. Is that accurate? Yeah. You're the Bedlam Butcher. I... I don't really like that name. Maybe we could use a different one. I don't think you get to choose the name. I think the media took that opportunity for themselves. So, why don't you start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us about Stephanie Fields? That's... she wasn't the beginning. That wasn't the first. Who was the first? Um, actually, could we start a little earlier than that? Just from the beginning? Sure. Of course. Okay. Okay. So, I wasn't... I wasn't like this as a kid. Okay, I like... Growing up, I had a good home life and everything. I never... You know, I never murdered cats or, or anything like that. You know, this, this started when, I think a little after I graduated college is when it started. When what started? You know, when I started getting these urges to, uh, to kill women. Not just any women, though, right? You only killed blonde women. Oh, that wasn't intentional, actually. Just, you know, they all ended up being blonde. 
Do you really expect me to believe that? They just coincidentally all had the same color hair? Well, they don't, actually. You know, the ones you found all have the same hair color, but there are two others. And one's a brunette, and one had red hair. And that red-haired one, she was the first. Okay, so tell me about her. The first girl was Cassandra Blank. Now, just a moment, that doesn't track. Cassandra Blanc was strangled to death, the other victims were dismembered. You mean to tell me that you tried strangling someone, decided it just wasn't your thing, and moved right to dismemberment? No, that's not what I... Stop lying to me, Josh. I'm not. No, and my name isn't Josh. It's James, and I'm trying to tell you why I strangled her, okay? Alright then. Tell me about her murder. Tell me like I don't know anything about her case. Okay. I picked her up while she was hitchhiking. She asked me for a ride in a town, and that's all I was gonna do, I swear. I just wanted to be helpful. Thought you'd be a good Samaritan, hmm? With absolutely no intention to kill her. Okay. I know it's hard to believe. I know how it sounds. Sure. But I did. I just wanted to help her, and then while we were in the car, I just... I don't know. I was overcome with this uncontrollable urge. So I pulled the car over, and I reached over, and I put my hands around her neck and squeezed. I squeezed for... It must have been five straight minutes. My hands were exhausted by the end. I think she stopped breathing one minute in, but I just couldn't stop. And then? And then I opened the door to the car and just pushed her out into the ditch. And I closed the door and drove off. Just like that? Just like that. So why didn't you chop her up like the others? I don't know, it was an impulse thing. I killed her and then I panicked. I just needed the body out of my car and I had to drive away as fast as I could. I wasn't even thinking, I don't know. You're going to want to stop telling me you don't know. You damn well know what you did and why you did it. Don't waste my time, do you understand? Yeah, but I just... Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Tell me about the next girl. The next girl was Stephanie. I met her at a bar about a month after Cassandra. We started chatting, and I asked if she wanted to go back to my place, and she said yeah. So we got there, and we, you know, we had sex, and after she fell asleep... And I got that urge again. It was like I wasn't even in my own body. I got up, went to the shed, grabbed an axe, came back into the house and just started chopping. So you didn't plan to kill Stephanie when you took her home that night? No, God no. Even though you'd killed another girl a month before, you just happened to invite her home and suddenly feel the need to hack her apart? I convinced myself that the Cassandra thing was a fluke, like a one-time thing. I got that urge and then it went away right after and I hadn't felt it again for the whole month. I just thought it was that one time, I swear. And what did you do after you killed Stephanie? I... I gathered up her pieces in a blanket. Then I just put her in the trunk of my car and drove out to the Deerfield woods and just scattered them. I tried to hide them in some underbrush. Because you wanted someone to find her? No, no, because I panicked. It, Jesus, I don't know how to get rid of a body. It's not like I planned this out. I'm really fucking sick of your lying, James. You expect me to believe that a serial killer didn't plan any of this, that it just happened to you. That's what every serial killer says. You all try to push the blame somewhere else. I'm trying to push the blame. I'm trying to be honest. I, I really don't know why I... Do you want to know what I think, James? Um, what do you think? I think this is all bullshit. I don't think you've killed anyone. I think you're walking in here lying about being the killer because of some fucked up need for attention. 
and you think we're all stupid enough to buy this horseshit. But I've been a detective for 25 years, and I've seen about a hundred of you sick freaks. You think I'm lying? I think that serial killers don't just waltz into police stations and turn themselves in because this isn't some shitty made-for-TV horror movie. This is ridiculous. I'm telling you, I am the Bedlam Butcher. Oh, yeah? Then prove it. Tell me something about the case that the general public doesn't know. Anything at all. Go on. Fine. Fuck you. Fine. Uh, Stephanie Fields had a tattoo of a bat just above her left hip bone. And uh, Marjorie Evans, her ID was missing from her wallet because I took it and kept it in my wallet. And here. See? I kept it and I don't know why I did it. And you've never found Tracy Wilder's left shoe because I keep it under my bed. It has a blood stain on the tip. It's a black stiletto, size 6. This... this is Marjorie Evans' ID. Yes, yes, see? I was telling the truth. Holy Jesus Christ. Do you believe me now? I, uh... I need to step out and make a call. All right, James. Let's hear what else you have to say. Fucking finally. Now where was I? You were about to tell me about Elizabeth Thompson's murder. Oh, right. She was after... Wait. Hold on. What now? Elizabeth Thompson isn't one of the Bedlam Butcher's known victims. No, no, she's the other one that nobody had connected to the killer yet. Because I didn't cut her up, I hit her over the head and dumped the body off the quarry at the edge of town. I mean, the police haven't even found her body yet, so how the fuck do you know about her? (laughs) Well, I guess that cat's out of the bag now, isn't it? What the fuck? And I know a little something about those uncontrollable urges, too. It's nice, isn't it? The thought that it isn't you doing it, that it's something else. But maybe it's your fault that that something else has the power to do it in the first place. Did you ever think of that? I don't understand. What are you talking about? I'm talking about that party you went to in 2017 at the end of your senior year of college. Do you remember that party, James? Why the fuck does it... Do you remember what you did in the basement? I didn't do anything, okay? What the fuck? It was just a dumb party. We were fucking around. You were fucking around with a Ouija board. No, no, I absolutely was not. I wasn't even in the same room as that shit. I was in the basement where... Where the other guests were conducting a ritual. Tell me, did you enjoy dabbling in Satanism? No, I didn't. They offered you a drink, and you took it. And it's fucking disgusting. And then I left. I should say that drinking goat's blood mixed with shitty vodka would taste disgusting. That was goat's blood. You invited us in that night, and we've made quite a home with you. So, no, those uncontrollable urges aren't from you, but you are the one who allowed them in. So who's really at fault here, James? Why why are you doing this? This right here is my favorite thing about you. You're so stupid. We're doing this because we can. Because we want to destroy you and everyone around you. I don't know how you've lived your life for so long being such an idiot. If I were you, I would have killed myself by now. Don't worry. You'll do that eventually. But not just yet. We're not done with you. Oh no, you're a fucking monster. I I won't let you do this. I won't let you get away with this. But you will. We've already gotten away with eight murders, and we're going to get away with many more. By the time we're through with you, 
you'll be known as the most prolific serial killer in American history. And everyone will know your name. No, nobody else will die. I- I'm walking out of here and going to another police station. But somebody else has already died, James. But that's... No, that is impossible. I've been here the whole time. Nobody else has... I haven't. Oh, James, none of this is real. While we've been sitting in this room talking, your real body, your conscious body, has been very busy. Tomorrow, Tiffany Bellwether's family will report her missing, and you'll be dumping her pieces in the Deerfield woods, just like you did with the others. No, no, oh God, no. And you're not going to tell anyone else. You know how I know? Because you've already tried. We've had this conversation quite a few times already. You always try to turn yourself in. It would be funny if it weren't quite so pathetic. But I don't remember. No, you don't. And you won't remember this conversation either. Instead, when you wake up, you're going to remember murdering Tiffany. You're going to know exactly how it felt when you cut open her artery and she sprayed you with her blood. You're going to remember looking into her brown eyes and watching the color fade. You're going to remember the grind of her femur on your axe. You'll remember it all, James. I promise you that. Now, I've so enjoyed our time together, and I look forward to our next interview. But for now, I really think it's time for you to go. Motherfucker, I won't let you win. You fucking bastards, you'll... In our final tale, we meet a man going through one of life's toughest challenges. His friend Neil has a new girlfriend, and it's severely reducing their number of guys' nights out. Thankfully, a traveling attraction has rolled up which all three of them can attend together. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jack Thackwell, this potential third-wheel situation just might drive the friends to their doom. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, Penny Scott Andrews, Andy Cresswell, and Erica Sanderson. So enjoy the sights, sounds, and smells. Let loose and have fun. But don't do anything that might leave you with regrets if you reflect on that one time when the fair came to town. It was Friday when they started to set up the carnival. It was open the next night. (sighs) That seems odd to me now. All those tents and rides, it should have taken them days, not hours. Nothing that big takes just hours to prepare. But at the time I thought, maybe they were just that good. We went that Saturday. Me, Neil and his girlfriend Mel... 
It was a big thing for me. It was rare that I could get Neil out since he hooked up with Mel. They were a clingy, in-your-face pair ever since they'd met. The funfair, though, that had tempted him, even if I did have to do a bit of cajoling over the phone. Oh, come on, we always used to go to these things. Uh, I don't know, mate. Me and Mel were just thinking about staying in with a curry, watching a film. Like you did last Friday, you mean? Was it fair to use that against him? Maybe. Most likely not. You can tell me, oh, it's different when you have someone, and maybe it is, but you have to remember where you came from and who got you there. I'd heard him breathe out a heavy sigh that crackled down the line. I knew I'd got him. Oh, go on. You can win her a teddy at the air rifles and be a hero. That was the tipping point. There'd been one more moment of silence, and then... All right, we'll meet you there. When we arrived, it all seemed standard. Hooker duck stalls, ring-toss pavilions, familiar old roller coasters smelling of sawdusted vomit. The way Neil kept all his attention on Mel, leaving me to walk behind them, made me face the sudden realisation that this would probably be the last time we would meet up. It made me sad to think of that, but right there in the warm night breeze, surrounded by the glow of the rides, it felt bittersweet. One final go around. The interesting thing about this fair were the less-than-standard attractions. Those really were amazing and out of place. The freak show in its red velvet tent. The fortune teller who beckoned us on with a crooked finger as she sat in her glass box that smelled of rot. The giant boa constrictor in its cage, cordoned off by thick steel chains. This part of the fair was older, like something from a Victorian nightmare. One of the exhibits must have caught Neil's eye because he gasped and pried his hand away from Mel's grip before darting off, leaving me and her alone. I shot her a forced smile. She pursed her lips and looked away. Soon we saw Neil's waving arms. He was standing outside a large plywood shack. It was squat and rectangular with flaking black and red paint. It looked like it had been worn away over many years. It had two doors set into the wood, one marked in, one marked out. In stark golden letters above the doors were the words, Pickman's House of Horrors. This looks great. Does it? Mel frowned. I'm not getting that vibe. It smells like seawater. Yeah, she's right. The good horror attractions always have some decoration on the outside. You know, a severed head here, a clown mask there, and a a rubber bat or two. I mean, this one's pretty plain. Neil just doubled down. That's what makes this one so unique. They don't put anything on the outside because all the best bits are on the inside. He grinned. 
Seriously, look at the rest of the shit around here. This is pre-political correctness. Fuck knows what's in there, or how far they take it. I was about to question his logic when a small man appeared from around the corner of the building. He was dressed in a red velvet jacket fraying at the cuffs and hem, and a straw boater. He seemed to carry with him the long-dead smell of fried food and faintly something metallic. When he grinned, he grinned wide. That is a fine observation, my good man. A very fine observation indeed. Are you, Mr. Pickman? In the flesh. The small man took a bow, nearly sending his boater tumbling to the ground. And as your handsome friend there said, the very best of what is in store for you is kept within these walls. Evil I dare not name awaits you in Pickman's House of Horrors. He had a face like a goblin out of a storybook. I wasn't sure if there was something wrong with him or he was just old, but I couldn't help but feel uneasy. Well, I'm sold already. Neil beamed. Mel frowned and tugged on his hand. I thought we'd go to one of the stalls and see if you could win me a prize. We will. Let's just do this first. After that, I'll play till I win you one of those big bears. That seemed to pacify her. I was less easily convinced. Something didn't feel right about Mr. Pickman or his house of horrors. It was like he was in the wrong place in some way. Like he wasn't a carny, like he wasn't faking... All the other scares around there were modern, fluorescent masks and day-glow plastic. Not him. How much is it? I thought the cost might put Neil off. For the price of but one pound, you will gain entry to this marvellous attraction. A remnant of a bygone era when carnivals were the pride of this great land of ours. It sounded like he'd rehearsed this in a mirror and long since lost enthusiasm for what he was saying. Neil was already fishing around in his pocket for a pound coin. He looked pointedly at Mel and she rolled her eyes before doing the same. I groaned and pulled a five-pound note from my pocket. Can you make change for this? Certainly, sir. Pickman's eyes grew wide as he saw the note. He smiled before clicking out four pound coins from a coin dispenser on his belt. We waited expectantly as Mr. Pickman unlocked the door marked in, revealing nothing but darkness. Off you go. That was the last thing Mel and Neil heard from him. I was bringing up the rear and caught some quieter words. 
just watch a fucking step. It was a flash of truth behind the mask. Pigman the not-so-jolly. Pigman was happy to have got our money so he could go and buy himself a drink, that sort of thing. Oddly, it reassured me. He was just a huckster after all, nothing more sinister than that. We stepped inside and he shut the door, entombing us in darkness. A second later, dim electric bulbs flickered into life, and we were in a narrow corridor plastered with old-fashioned floral wallpaper, a sickly shade of arsenic green. (sighs) Well, this isn't very scary. We'll give it a chance, Mel. We've only just got in. Neil slipped his hand into hers. I saw Mel's fingers squeeze around his and assumed the atmosphere was getting to her more than she was letting on. We started to walk. The lights, yellowed with dust and the gunk accrued through years of being in one place, did little to brighten the corridor and we could see no more than three feet in front of us. I began to feel a little claustrophobic. I imagined the ugly floral wallpaper pressing in on me as I walked, the plywood walls grinding and splintering against each other as they moved. At the end of the passage was a flight of spiral stairs. We stopped just before them and stared down into the stairwell. This thing goes down? How could it possibly go down? Wasn't there an army base here in the war? Maybe this is an old bomb shelter. It's got to be. Mel didn't know any more about it than I did, but it's good to agree with your boyfriend, and she clung on tighter to him. No, it didn't make sense. This was a pop-up attraction, meant to be taken down, moved on to a new area and put back up. Maybe they got lucky with an old base this time, but that couldn't happen everywhere. Did they dig out new foundations each time? How could they? Neil grinned. See? I knew this would be interesting. So, who's going to go first? The three of us had a short moment of silence where we each expected one of the others to volunteer. Fine, I'll do it. Neil began to descend the staircase, placing his hands against the wall to balance himself. I distinctly heard him mutter something mean-spirited under his breath. We followed him down and the three of us came to another door. It looked like the way into a study. It was heavy and made of dark wood. Mel pushed it open and we stepped into the room that lay beyond. It was very odd. All the surfaces were covered in dark black foam and it was cut in half by a crisscross design of what looked like wire. On the far wall opposite us was a clock face and underneath that a second door. Well, that looks like where we need to get to. Neil walked across to the wire and made to pluck it like you would a guitar string. 
it moved down a centimetre or two before twanging back into place and slicing off the tip of his finger. Shit! Blood welled up and dripped down between his knuckles. It's like bloody razor wire. There was a chime from somewhere I couldn't see and the door behind us slammed shut and locked. I could see the clock on the wall in front of us and I watched the minute hand begin to move. The wires across the room whirred and a diamond-shaped gap appeared in the middle. It was big enough for a person to fit through, but only just, and even that was shrinking. I then understood where I'd seen the foam before and why the wires were moving closer together. It was soundproofing, like the kind used in recording studios. It was there to stop our movements making a sound, but some mechanism in the room was picking up on our voices and it was our words that were making the gap small. What the hell is happening? The wires started to vibrate and the gap shrunk by an inch. The big hand on the clock kept moving. I put my finger to my lips to try and shush the other two, but they didn't seem to understand. This isn't right. Mel was starting to jitter. The wires closed in again. In despair, I dropped my finger from my lips. Will you shut up? She looked at me in surprise and I gestured to the wires as they moved even closer together. The gap was now the size of an open window. I checked the clock. Six. I didn't want to know what would happen when it reached twelve. I approached the wires. They seemed to sparkle in the dim light of the room. I guess they'd been coated in something to make them extra sharp, ground glass perhaps. I could see that they weren't so much vibrating as soaring backwards and forwards, making little slicing noises as they did. I tentatively lifted my right leg and passed it through the gap. I waited for the sharp sting of wires cutting through my jeans, but it never came. Only the firmness of foam under my shoe on the other side. This made me confident. I stooped down and ducked my head under the gap. I was safe. I checked the clock. Eight. Only four ticks left to get Neil and Mel across before... Before what? I waved to the other two and they hurried over to the gap. Mel was the first to try and cross. She stuck her head through and offered me her arms while Neil lifted her legs and shoved her through the remaining space. Her feet hit the foam with a soft thud before she picked herself up. Neil's turn. His finger was still bleeding and he sucked on it as he eyed up the space in the wire. My eyes caught the clock again. Nine. When I looked back to my friend, I saw that he was preparing to try and launch himself through the hole. I moved my hands up to my chest and waved to show him that I thought that was a very bad idea. Of course, he didn't listen to me, he never fucking listened to me, and jumped anyway. 
He launched himself through the air and, to his credit, his torso did clear the gap. For a moment, it seemed like the gamble would pay off. That is, until the toe of his converse got caught on the wire. There was a gristly sawing sound and Neil came unstuck. He dropped to the foam and was followed a moment later by the last part of his foot. Neil's hand sprung to the clean cut of flesh that used to be the end of his foot. Blood pulsed out from under his fingers and soaked into the floor. I pulled off my jumper and ripped a sleeve from it. I tied that tightly around his foot, trying to stem the flow of blood. The clock struck twelve and the room boomed with the sound of chimes. As the sound was hungrily absorbed by the foam coverings, the wires shot across the other side of the room. Anyone who had been standing on the wrong side would have been minced finer than Wagyu beef. It didn't just go to where we'd been standing, it sort of danced around in it, making sure it got every inch. Pieces. We would have been sliced to pieces. Then the trap stopped soaring and came back to its original grid pattern, which we could now see had been made of two different layers. The silence was deafening. I reached out and gingerly touched the wire. Nothing happened, no gap formed again. Well, we're not getting out that way. What the hell just happened? Neil grimaced. He was still clutching his foot, but the blood seemed to have stopped for the moment. Mel wiped sweat from her face. Holy shit! That thing could have killed us! Fuck that. It nearly did kill me. We've got to get out of here. He tugged his phone from his back pocket. I'm calling the police. Mel did the same while I started to look around the room. Shit. No service. It became obvious that it wasn't just his network, but that we were trapped in some kind of dead space. Neither phone worked, no matter how hard they jabbed the buttons or how loudly they yelled abuse. We've got to yell. Maybe someone will hear us. It won't work. See that phone? Yeah? It's soundproofing, like in a recording studio. No one will be able to hear us, no matter how loud you scream. Mel was starting to get panicky. I couldn't blame her, but I spoke as calmly as I could. If Pickman put one of these traps into his house of horrors, I'm sure it won't be the only one. He's like that crazy guy, H.H. Holmes, in his murder castle. (laughs) Mel looked blank. I turned to Neil. He was glassy-eyed with pain, but he might remember the conversation we'd once had in the library about famous and fucked-up murders. You know, the guy at the Chicago's World Fair, America's first serial killer. He used a bunch of contractors to build a block-sized hotel full of traps and shoots. Neil shook his head. The fuck is wrong with you? The shit you bring up. Mel pulled us back to the situation at hand. 
Couldn't this be the only one? The only trap? Maybe Mr. Pickman thought this one would kill us. Are you sure there'll be more? Not a chance. If Pickman's anything like Holmes, he'd have had gas in here as well. A failsafe, something to make sure we didn't make it. So, this is all some kind of sick game? No. Well, sort of. This is something important to Pickman. He needs this, but it has to be a certain way. He'll have specific rules. We just have to learn them and follow them. Neil was hobbling to his feet. There's only one way out of this place. Assuming we can get out of all there is. And that means we have to keep going. Mel helped Neil to stay upright and pulled his arms around her shoulder for support. He wasn't going to be much good at walking now, and there was a worrying paintbrush trail of blood behind us. Seemed my sleeve hadn't been as useful as I thought. I cautiously pushed the door open and waited. Nothing. I poked my head around the frame. Another corridor. The same as before, the same yellowing electric lights and ancient wallpaper, but this time it was shorter, and I could see all the way to the end where there was an old-fashioned elevator, the kind with the metal cage door and brass handles. I waved the other two on and shut the door behind us. Watch where you step. We don't want any more nasty surprises. We hobbled towards the elevator, staring at our feet, trying to spot any traps, but in the end we made it. No deadfalls, no punji sticks, no falling candelabras. We heaved Neil into the lift and lent him against the wall while we examined the buttons. At first they gave me hope. Maybe I had been wrong when I said these wouldn't take us up to the out door. But then I took a second glance at the buttons. There were two floors, minus one and minus two. The only way out was down. Mel looked at me. She knew. I shrugged by way of apology before pressing the dark button. The elevator jarred into life and the door shut. It was from a time before Muzak, so we were left with the grinding of gears as we descended further into the earth. I leant back against the door and rubbed my face with my hands. Soon the lift shuddered and the sound of gears stopped. The door creaked open and we stepped through. Once again we found ourselves in a corridor but this time there was no illumination. We pulled Neil upright and began to haul him through the darkness, the only light being cast by a dingy bulb in the elevator, throwing slender mockeries of our shadows ahead of us along the walls. We hadn't taken more than five paces before the door to the elevator slid shut and ascended, leaving us in total darkness. There's only one thing we can do. Keep going and hope there's a door at the end of this hallway. We started walking again, dragging Neil under his arms. 
I had the feeling that he wanted to say something, but before he could, there was a noise from beside us, a loud slamming. It made all three of us jump, and we nearly dropped Neil. I heard a slight sniffing noise, the kind a dog makes as it scents the air. Neil trembled over my shoulder. What was that? Just run. I began to power my feet into the floor, practically pulling the other two over in the process. That was when the noise started, a clacking like clawed feet on a hardwood floor. It was right behind as we ran. My heart nearly stopped when a harsh, panting voice joined it. I turned my head for an instant, still running, trying to catch a glimpse of the thing despite the dark. But I couldn't see anything apart from two flashes of red. The creature's eyes, which were full of joyous light as it chased us through the passageway. The thing babbled other words at us as we ran, but I couldn't hear them for the drumming in my ears. At last, we crashed into something solid and unforgiving, knocking us over. I heard a cry from Neil as he landed badly on his leg. We waited in the darkness, panting for the thing to begin its work, but it never did. Puzzled, I got up, pulling the other two with me. I faced the corridor, keeping an eye on those two bits of red light, and walked backward, slowly, my arm around Neil's waist. We moved until we found ourselves pressed against the solid surface we had run into. I wandered my free hand over its exterior. I could feel a grain and knew whatever it was, it was made of wood. A few more moments of searching and my hand found something metal and round. A doorknob. I gripped it hard and turned. The door opened easily on greased hinges when pushed by our weight, flooding the hallway with light. As the beam of light widened, it lit everything in the corridor. The blank wooden walls, the scratched and stained floor. Even the creature standing no less than a foot from us. It was very small, its full height making it no taller than my waist. Its skin was grey and dead-looking. It had a matted beard of dark black hair and yellowed eyes. Its hands were gnarled and looked as powerful as pneumatic vices. Its fingers ended in long claw-like nails. The creature stared at us, standing in the doorway. It didn't move at first, it simply looked... It opened its mouth in a grin, giving us a good look at a set of yellow, gristle-flecked teeth, each as sharp as a surgical knife. The thing flicked out a long red tongue and slid it over these canines. That gesture said all it needed to. I'll be seeing you later. It darted to our right, disappearing through a wooden hatch. We heard it skittering away through the wall. Mel jumped when she heard that, and Neil almost fell. What the fuck kind of thing was that? I stabilized my friend, and he glared at Mel. I don't know, and there's nothing we can do about it now. Come on, let's just get the fuck out of here. 
the three of us turned around and headed into the new room. It was different from the last one. This one was circular with yellow painted walls. There was a heavy screen of dust in the air and the current of the closing door sent it dancing through the beam of bright yellow bulbs fixed to the ceiling. There was an exit on the opposite side. I didn't need to try the handle to know that it was locked. I propped Neil in a sitting position against the wall and told Mel to look after him while I looked around the room. What are we going to do? You are going to stay calm, keep your heartbeat down. You lost a lot of blood in that corridor, lose any more and you'll end up looking like that shriveled old husk Pickman. I wagged a finger at him, trying to keep jovial. Mel nodded. He's right. If you lose any more, you're going to start blacking out. Neil began to grumble, but I'd already turned my attention back to the room. There had to be some way to open the door. My heart skipped a beat when I caught sight of a large pull grip dangling from the wall. It was one of the old ones, like you see in lavatories, with the long wooden bars inside a metal U which was attached to a chain that vanished into the yellow plasterwork of the wall. Guys, uh, I've found something. They looked up and noticed the chain. Their eyes lit up with hope. What are you waiting for? Yeah, pull it! I reached out to pull the chain before taking my hand back. I remembered what had happened in the last room. We'd gotten lucky. The trap had been relatively easy and we'd gotten through more or less unharmed. What if we weren't so lucky this time? Are you sure, guys? We don't know what'll happen. There might be another trap. We made it through the one before in one piece, didn't we? Mel hastily backtracked after a scowl from Neil. I mean, we made it out alive. Like it or not, if this could open the door, it was our only option. I sighed and gave the chain a sharp tug. It rattled and its links chanked as they slid from the wall before retracting and returning to its previous position. There was a sudden crunching, and the walls of one half of the room slid down, revealing a giant steel bracket, all lined with sharp metal hooks. We heard the scratch of a needle on a record, and the bright lights began to flash on and off. Chopin's Nocturne No. 2 flared into life, and there was a long series of audible clicks from the hooks, each as thin as a pencil but as long as a knitting needle. I stood stock still, trying not to laugh at the madness of the thing, feeling the music swell and rise, waiting for something to happen. Mel stared past me towards the chain. Maybe she was going to pull it once more to be certain it worked or something, I had no idea. But before she could get halfway, one of the many hooks shot through the air and buried itself in her shoulder. Blood impacted away from the wound and splattered the wall behind her, the yellow paint now speckled with red. Mel screamed and dropped to her knees. The hook was attached to a snaking iron chain that disappeared into a cavity past the iron grid of the bracket. 
this chain began to slowly but purposefully retract. Her screams clashed with Chopin as she flailed at the hook with her arm. This only succeeded in sending another prong from the bracket into her forearm. This chain also promptly tightened itself. I heard a metallic clicking noise as, link by link, the tethers began to drag Mel towards the edge of the room. I saw Neil try to get to his feet and shoved him back down, wham, onto his ass. No, because she's moving. Stay right where you are. But we have to help her. I knew he was right, but what could we do? Mel, you have to pull him out. Are you kidding me? You've got to. Stop moving and pull them out. It's the only way. My throat was starting to hurt then. If I wasn't careful, I was going to tear my vocal cords. Her remaining arm moved to the hook in her shoulder. She wrapped her hand around it and gave a slight tug. She screamed and let it go. Tears dripped down her face. I could see tears forming themselves in Neil's eyes as well. It must have been hell for him, seeing the girl he loved in that much pain and not being able to do anything about it. If I move, then those chains will come for me too. There is nothing we can do. Mel remained screaming and sliding across the floor. Chopin remained bright and cheerful as Neil's girlfriend struggled with the hooks. Whatever mechanism was pulling on the chains was moving faster now. Mel was being dragged with increasing speed towards the row of hooks. Her legs scrabbled on the floor, trying to find more grip, trying to stop the grim progress of the chains, but this only sent two more into her thighs, causing her to move all the faster. Soon her feet slipped in a track of blood, and she lost her hold altogether and went skidding across the ground. We watched in horror as, again, the chain sped up and Mel was pulled upright against the bracket. Neil buried his head in his hands. He didn't want to see what came next. I wanted to turn away too. I knew whatever was going to happen to Mel was not going to be pretty, but I couldn't. My eyes were glued to the scene in front of me. The horror of it wouldn't let me go. Mel had been annoying, but no one deserved to die like that. The spikes burst through her stomach and chest and out of her back in a shower of blood before quickly retracting and pulling her hard against the metal frame. She screamed, and for what felt like an eternity, the sound of splintering bones not quite drowned out by the music as Mel was pulped by the immense force exerted by the chains. And then as the chunks of her ruined body were pulled through the gaps in the bracket, blood sluiced down the metal and the yellow wall slid back up. It crunched into place, the record screeched off, and we were left in horrified silence. If it hadn't been for the bloodstains smeared all over the floor, you would never know anything had happened. 
Blood trails, finger paintings where you could see her handprints and desperate smeared toe streaks. What happened? <laughs> Neil was still covering his eyes. Where is she? Where's Mel? <clears throat> you really don't want to know. I shuddered. My sentence was followed by a metal slamming noise. I looked over to see the door swing open. Come on, let's get out of here. I heaved Neil up by his armpits. I gripped him around the waist and pulled his arm around my shoulder. We approached the doorway, beyond which was, as I had expected, another dimly lit hallway. Like the one after the wire room, this was short enough to see the end of the corridor. This time it wasn't an elevator or a stairwell. This time it was simply a hole in the far wall. We hobbled through the door and began to move. I scanned the walls at about shin level, hoping against hope that I wouldn't find a small wooden hatch, praying for the first time in my life that we wouldn't hear running feet from behind us. Of course we didn't. I reminded myself that the first time we had seen the creature, we had been in the corridor just before the room of hooks. The hallway we were in now would only be the interlude before the next challenge. I dragged Neil to the end of the corridor into the hole. I could now see that someone had painted a large red heart around the gap. Not one of those little love hearts you see on Valentine's Day, one of the proper ones. The anatomically correct ones. It gleamed in the light cast by the lamps, dark red streaks of oil paint roughly slapped into the woodwork. I stared at the heart for a while, examining all the veins and ventricles before Neil coughed. <coughs> what the fuck are you waiting for? Let's get out of this fucking place. I took a closer look at the hole. It was pitch black and I couldn't make out any shapes or noises. I leant Neil against the wall and gingerly put my hand into the empty space, just waiting for something to bite down on my hand and drag me in. There was nothing in there. All I could feel was smooth, round wall that went on for about a foot before the floor sloped away. <laughs> I think it's... a slide... I laughed. A slide seemed oddly childish for a house of horrors. There's got to be a way out. We're still going down. Further into the fucking thing. For all we know, there's a fucking bear trap down there that's covered in glass and piss. I drew back my hand and smacked Neil full force across the mouth. His skin was wet and hot with sweat and tears. Listen, stupid bastard. There is no other way to go. We have to follow his fucking trail, so it's either this slide and whatever's at the bottom, or we just give up and wait here to starve. A trail of blood dripped from a split in his lip. I just heard my girlfriend get torn apart. What the fuck do I care about getting out of here? You might not want to live, but... I dug my fingers into his shoulders and started to heave. But I do. 
I pulled Neil forward and helped him into the mouth of the chute. I watched him recede into the darkness, then drop away from my sight. I heard a slight whoosh and a short cry of surprise, then silence. I clambered into the hole and crawled on my hands and knees for a matter of seconds before the floor fell from under me and I was tumbling into nothing. I came to a sudden stop with such velocity that the wind was knocked from my lungs. I'd landed on something soft. I pushed my hand down to it and found that it was a layer of cushions, all made from different materials and designs. I felt patches of crust in some places of the covers, marks left by previous victims. I reached my hand out in front of me to feel for anything that I might stumble on, and it came down on what felt like denim. I heard a small cry, and the denim thing jerked away, causing a bigger cry. I guessed that the denim thing was Neil. Bright lights snapped on and illuminated the hallway we were in. It was long, longer than the one before the room of hooks, but I could see all the way to the end of this one thanks to the lights. They were cold and bright, either new or more like stage lights. That light showed me something else, something I should have been expecting but still made my heart drop. Neil? I think we're going to have to run. What? Why? I stretched out one finger and pointed to the shin-high wooden hatch in the wall. Wordlessly, Neil nodded and I tugged into his feet, my back now aching from all the lifting I'd been doing. Be ready, because we are seriously going to have to leg it. Neil grimaced. <clears throat> yeah, let's get this over with. I got ready, stretched my muscles, limbering up like an Olympian preparing to go for gold, and started running. I propelled myself along the corridor, dragging Neil after me. My trainers slammed into the floor and my heart pounded against my ribs. I could taste hot saliva in my mouth and my tongue felt swollen and bloated. When I heard a hatch opening, I nearly dropped Neil. The hound was loose. I heard those long nails on the floor behind us and I willed myself to move faster. My legs were burning now and I was muttering prayers to God, any God that could hear me deep under the earth and afraid. It was no use. I could hear the triumphant whoops from the thing behind us as it closed the distance. We were simply not fast enough, no matter how many breaths I took or how hard I powered my feet down. We weren't going to make it. Then a thought struck me. A bad one. I was out of options. The dark recesses of my mind chortled with glee and clapped their hands together, applauding me for my sickness as I hungrily seized the idea, my lifeline out of that place of nightmares. I gripped Neil tighter and unhooked his arm from around my shoulder. I shoved him away from me. He screamed with surprise and shock as he fell to the ground. I rushed on as his screams filled the stale air. The creature was on him. 
as I ran through the hall, that awful calcified gnawing sound of teeth on bone echoed off the walls and followed me. I crashed gratefully into the door and fumbled for the handle. I'd done it. I'd made it out, but maybe the least intact. I clutched the handle and turned to face down the corridor. I could see that thing crouched over Neil, blood glinting in the light as it pulled around my friend. The creature paused and looked up at me. For a horrible moment, I thought it would charge, but it simply grinned its terrible, snaggle-toothed grin and pointed at me. I thought it was marking me for its next meal, that it was going to spring on me. Instead, it took Neil by the shoulders and pulled his still-twitching form backwards into the shadows. I greedily gulped down air. My legs ached. I just wanted this to be all over. I resigned myself to my fate, knowing that whatever was behind this door would end it. I turned the handle, shoved it open and stumbled through. I felt a cool night breeze on my face. I opened my eyes and saw the fairground. I wheeled around and saw the wooden facade of Mr. Pickman's House of Horror, the plywood outdoor just shutting behind me. I fell to my knees, trampled grass soft beneath me. I could feel tears welling up in my eyes. Cheer up, son! Mr. Pickman strode into view. He seemed genuinely pleased to see me. I just lay there. Nice going. I've been moving my little attraction up and down the country for a long time now, and let me tell you, you did very well. Very well. He loomed closer for a second, exuding mock sympathy from that crumpled face. Just how old was this guy? Yes, very well indeed. And in the end, well, it was him or you, wasn't it? He bent down and slid something onto my lapel. It was a bright red badge. I grabbed at my jacket and pulled it to look at the button. I survived Mr. Pickman's House of Horror, it read in dark, spidery lettering. He tapped it, his nail making a ticking noise. These things are rare, you know. Only a handful of people in all the world have one. So you guard it well. He finished up with a wink, straightening his back with a series of dry pops. Why don't you come back next year, champ? Try your luck again. His face broke in a smile that pulled at his lips like they'd been dragged up by fishhooks. Maybe you won't lose so many friends the second time around, huh? Pickman turned his back to me and disappeared through a side door into his shack. <laughs> I heard him chuckle as he started off into his labyrinth, and under that... Was it the grinding of walls? 
The pathways and corridors reshaping themselves, reconstructing the place. Or just my imagination mixed with vibrations from the other rides. To this day, I haven't set foot in another carnival. I can't stand the smells of them. The oil on the machines, the popcorn and candy floss. If I see the lights or hear the calliope music playing late at night, I walk in the other direction. I don't know what I would do if I saw that old straw boater coming towards me through the crowd. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski. Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor in chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.